Thank you very much, Leland, and good morning, everyone. My name is Conway, and I am an alcoholic. I'm also a physician. I'm married and the father of five wonderful children. But you notice I say that I'm an alcoholic first. This is the way that I live my life. My disease of alcoholism becomes before everything else. It comes before my home. It comes before my job. It comes before my family. Because you see, I know any time that I should forget that I'm an alcoholic, any time that I should ever place anything above my disease of alcoholism, I would probably go back to what I was. And I was the sickest, the sorriest, most miserable, frightened human being that you can imagine. But today, thanks to the love, the mercy of a kind and a forgiving God, the strength and the hope and the love from people just like you, and the living program of Alcoholics Anonymous, I don't have to be ashamed of me anymore, and I don't have to run, and I don't have to hide, and I don't have to lie. And this is the way that I live my life today. And I live a life of gratitude. I live a life of joy. The joy of sobriety. The joy of sobriety. That is the theme that I would like to try to live, leave with you today. The joy of, the, of sobriety. Our program promises us happiness. And if you aren't finding the happiness, you're doing something wrong. So get with it. This is a program of living. This is a program of honesty. This is a program of love. The greatest of loves of all. The love of one human being for another human being. I want to thank the members of the committee and Leland, John, John Miller, all of them that were here. They've done a tremendous job. It's been a great conference. And it's such an honor to be here and to be asked to speak on this program. It's an honor to be asked to speak on any program. I deem it especially an honor and a privilege to speak in front of you, my peers. I say that with all humility and with all the love because, you see, you people are the ones that literally saved my life. No talk of mine, particularly in front of this group, would be complete without me mentioning my sponsor, Dr. John Mooney, the late Dr. John Mooney. And I'll probably mention Dr. John as we go along because he played such an instrumental part in my recovery. And I feel sure that his presence is here with us today, as I know it is with me. I do believe, though, in following the guidelines of the big book and where it says, we say in a general way what it used to be like, what happened and what it's like today. Because, you see, that's all that I really have to give is the sum total of my life's experiences 
because that's all that I am. I was born and raised in Atlanta. I've lived there almost all my life. My father's a doctor. My mother's a teacher. I have an older sister. And we had a very happy family. I had a very happy childhood up until about the age of 12. And somewhere along about the age of 12 was when I first realized that I was different from other people. I was different from you. Not a feeling of superiority, not a feeling of inferiority, but just a feeling of being different. Me and my things were different from other people. Or you could all be in a room and be laughing and talking and having a good time, and I came in and I didn't belong. Something was missing in me. I wasn't complete. I wasn't a whole person. As a child might feel in a room full of adults, something was missing in me. I took my first drink, though, when I was about five years old, and that was when I had the whooping cough. I know there are quite a few pediatricians here. I've heard it from the podium, and so you know quite well of the disease that I'm referring to. We don't see it much nowadays, but the old pertussis, the real severe whooping cough. And I had the whooping cough. And I remember real well, one particular night, I ran down the hall. I grabbed my daddy around his legs, and I stood there. My body was racking in these spasms of cough. And he took me into the bathroom, and he poured out about that much alcohol, and he gave it to me. And immediately the coughing stopped. My very first experience with alcohol, it solved the need, it gave me relief, it stopped the cough. And I think that's interesting. I don't think it's got anything in the world to do with me being an alcoholic, but it's interesting. (laughs) What is significant about it, though, is the fact that I remember it so well. This is something that happened 52 years ago. 52 and 5 is 57, if there's anybody <laughs> But I remember it just like it was yesterday. It is a significant event in our lives when those of us who have this condition are first united with this magic elixir called alcohol. How many times when you hear people telling their stories, they will relate in detail their very first drink? Where they were, what they did before, what they did afterwards, how much it cost, who was there, all the circumstances surrounding it. Now, you don't remember your first root beer or your first chocolate milk. It is a significant event in our lives. Well, there wasn't really any more drinking up until high school, then some uh, show-off drinking. My mother, uh, who was very, I was very close to, died in my early teens, and this was a tremendous loss. Now... My father was a doctor and gone from home most of the time. My sister was considerably older, and at the death of my mother, I was alone. Alone and different from other people. And this is the way that I lived most of my life, searching for that place where I belonged, where I was comfortable, where I was needed, and where I was loved. Of course, my family loved me, and I know they loved me, but for some reason that wasn't enough. I never felt needed by anybody or anything. But I guess that I was loved. I was an overachiever. I did real well. Not because I was so smart, but my mother, being a teacher, had prepared me very well during the early years. She taught me how to study. 
And this enabled me to go a long ways. I was usually the top of the class wherever I did everything that I did. She taught me how to study, and I was willing to work to put the effort in to make it happen, and, and I did real well. I finished high school, and I met in college the most beautiful girl in the world. She was the prettiest thing that you'd ever seen. She had real dark skin and, and very brown hair and, and sparkling deep brown eyes. And it was a storybook romance. She was alone and I was alone. And we fell in love and after a while we got married. And we had two children. And then she became quite ill with a progressive illness. And first she went insane and then she died. Another great loss and another great tragedy. And now I had begun to drink more and more, partially due to this time, partially because I didn't know what else to do, partially just simply because I wanted to. I was now entering in, it was into medical school, and as a result of this drinking now, my grades began to deteriorate, and I dropped from the top of the class down to the bottom of the class. I finally did graduate, but then I went to serve my internship at the city hospital there in Atlanta, and it's a big hospital. This is the Grady's, as we called it back then. There's some other Grady folks here that I know about. And <clears throat> what I'm talking about is the old Grady's. Now, they've got a new Grady that's an old Grady, but I'm talking about the old, old Grady. <laughs> but this was a wonderful experience. These were the war years. There was a tremendous shortage of everything, especially doctors. And at, at that time, there were only four surgery interns to, to serve this hospital. And it was a huge hospital. And we really worked. We worked 36 hours on. We had 12 hours off. And, and it was boogity, boogity, boogity the whole time. And, you know, the, the operating room to the delivery room to the emergency room to ride in the ambulance. And, and I loved it. I loved it. You see, for the very first time in my life, I'm providing a service to mankind. And I was needed. Now, I wasn't much, but I was all they had, and they appreciated it. <laughs> Also, when the 12 hours off came, I was so exhausted, the only thing I was interested in was going to sleep. I stopped drinking during this period of time. Or if I had anything, it would be one drink. I was more interested in going to bed and getting some rest. So I stopped drinking. I consider this a stopgap in my progression to the disease of active alcoholism. It takes two things to make the alcoholic. One with a condition and alcohol. You put the two together and you get the alcoholism. I stopped drinking. Or well, I finished my internship and then I went into my specialty. And as Leland told you, I am a specialist. I'm a ladies doctor. And I never fail to take the opportunity when I'm in the presence of so many beautiful women. I want to thank you because you've been so good to me and my family and I appreciate it. It is a, a wonderful type of work. It's a very rewarding type of work. Most of the time you're dealing with normal, healthy, and happy people and being there at the, at the time of birth and of creation. And it's a very significant event. And you become actually become part of people's families and, and this sort of thing. It's, it's a tremendously rewarding uh, type of work to do. 
And uh, I, d I don't do that now, and I haven't for quite a few years. And, of course, the reason for that is that now, for the past few years, almost 18 years, I have been working in the field of addiction and being present, if you will, at the rebirth of so many people and enjoying the miracle, not only of the rebirth, the miracle of recovery, the greatest miracle. And whenever I mention that, I must refer to that simple little book by Ogmandino called The Greatest Miracle. And if you haven't read it, please read it. Please get it and read it. You'll love it. And, and then what really is the greatest miracle? Is it perhaps the return from death back to life? Or is there even a greater miracle? The return of so many of us from that living death that experienced the purgatory of existence on earth and to be reunited into a productive and to a happy and to a free life in this world. Well, anyhow, I, I spent the next five years there as a first assistant to the store, and then uh, I met one of the nurses there in the hospital. I was, I was married, and then I was drafted. And they sent me to Fort Sam Houston, and that's where, as you know, they send all doctors to make soldiers out of them, and this wasn't anything in the world except a vacation. Uh, to sort of summarize my military career, I know most of you have either seen the motion picture or the television series called MASH. And those of you that had the privilege of working in the Mobile Army Surgical Hospitals know what I'm talking about. It's all true. Um, uh, now, there were a lot of dedicated, hard-working docs, and, don't, don't, and we worked hard, but we played hard, and we had a lot of fun, and, and it was a great experience. I received orders to go to Orleans, France, and I, I never got to France. Uh, my orders were changed, and I was sent back to Virginia to the transportation headquarters, and um, I remember quite well driving down and pulling up to the gates of this command post there, and the MPs stopped the car and asked for my orders, and and I gave them to them. They went back into the little hut and came up and standing there in line. And they gave me a real snappy salute. I said, this is a Class A outfit here. <laughs> you see, unknown to me, the reason my orders were changed and I was reassigned, the commanding general's wife was pregnant. And I was the one responsible for this military emergency. <laughs> From the moment I drove through those gates, I was the commanding general's wife's doctor. Now, wherever the commanding general went, commanding general's wife went, commanding general's wife's doctor went. We took the yacht out on the James River, commanding general, commanding general's wife, commanding general's wife's doctor. <laughs> we took the helicopters to New York, commanding general, commanding general's wife, commanding general's wife's doctor. Wherever the commanding general and, the, and his lady went, the little doctor went too. You know, sort of like a mascot. They pulled me along with them. And this was a wonderful way to, to uh, serve your country. And uh, <laughs> I will have to say that she finally did have a nice baby boy, who I am sure someday will be a commanding general, just like his father and his grandfather. And this will have to go as my contribution to the defense of the United States. <laughs> But I loved Army life, and, and I really enjoyed it. I'm, I'm a real patriot, and I, I must say this. And uh, I love bands and parades and uniforms and flags. And, and I'm so thrilled of this, this past experience of the 4th of July, of, of the movement that came across our country. And, and unashamedly, with tears in my eyes, 
when they sang America the Beautiful. Because that is, that is all this is so meaningful to me. And, and I just loved Army life. I would have stayed in the Army except for this childhood dream, this ambition, this filial obligation, if you will. I wanted to come back and work with my father. My father, my friends, was my hero. And he still is. As far as I'm concerned, as the greatest mortal man that ever walked the face of this earth, he was the kindest, the gentlest, the most caring, and the greatest healer that I have ever known. First of all, I wanted to be a doctor like my daddy, and then I wanted to work with him, and I did. Well, here, if you get the picture, I come back from the service. I'm, I'm a native son. My father has a large practice. I'm known by almost everybody there. The members of the medical com- community literally rolled out the carpet to welcome me home. And I was put on more committees and given more duties and more assignments. And I was teaching in the medical school and I was running clinics and, and all of these things. And by now, my ego was about out of sight. So I thought they were doing what they should. All except... All except my father. And he was looking over my shoulder all of the time. Everywhere I went and everything that I did. He was right there too. He was look I'd be in signing my name and he was looking down to see what I was writing. I'd go down to the hospital in the middle of the night. Wouldn't be fifteen minutes before he'd be down there checking up on me. I'd turn around real fast, I'd bump into him. And I resented this. Here I was, a young hero, returning from the wars, and I'd received the finest training the country had to offer, and he didn't trust me. I was ready to come in and put him out in the pasture. And now my wife started having children, and I resented this. I resented these babies being born, interfering with my life and giving me duty and responsibility and obligations that I wasn't ready to assume. I resented these babies for being born, and I resented her for having them. I guess I thought she did it all by herself. (laughs) So you see now what I have done. I have turned away from the only two people in this world that really were close to me. Alcoholics, drug addicts, perfect geniuses. We build this wall of isolation that we hide behind. And we hurt the ones that we love and that we need the most. And I didn't feel like I loved or needed anybody. During this period of time, when I returned back and went to work, these next few months or years, I don't know exactly when, there's absolutely no question in my mind that this is when I crossed over that invisible but completely irreversible line into the disease of active alcoholism. Once you go across that line, my friends, you never go back the other way. Or as one of our South Georgia statesmen says, once a cucumber becomes a pickle, you never go back to being a cucumber again. And I was well pickled. Quite candidly and honestly, as I can tell you, that during this period of time, I did almost every horrible thing that you have ever heard of an alcoholic doing. And I'm not proud of that. And I am certainly sorry for the people that I hurt along the way. My children bear scars that will never be erased. But 
I am not ashamed of the fact that I'm an alcoholic, that I have the disease of alcoholism. I was probably born that way. Any more so than I would be if I had diabetes or colitis or any another of 50 other diseases I could name. I am not responsible for my illness. I am responsible for my recovery. I didn't know what was wrong with me. Or anybody who was living the life that I was living, something had to happen to, and it did. Monday morning, October the 1st of 1962, I had a massive heart attack. I was taken to the hospital for a while. They didn't know if I would live, and I certainly didn't know if I would ever be able to work again. I became very depressed and very bitter. And this is where I turned against God. Why did you do this to me? Here I've spent all these years, all this time, all this money now just to be of a place where I'll be a service to you, to me, to mankind. And you cast me down here in the bed helpless, not even able to bathe myself. Why did you do this to me? I cursed God. Came consumed with hate, bitterness, despair. So I wonder I didn't kill myself. Finally, I did leave the hospital, and I went down to live with my sister, who had moved down to a little island down off the coast of Georgia. And Leland referred to it a while ago, and that's where we live now. And I want to take just a minute to tell you about St. Simon's Island, because it plays a very important part in my recovery, then and now. And it's a beautiful little place. I know many of you have been there, and... Those of you in heaven, I, I would like to invite you to come. It's not very large, though, so don't all come at once. <laughs> but as you drive across the bridge and you enter on the island, one of the first things is you notice is the natural beauty that's present there. The luxuriant greenery, the fauna and the flora, the flowers and then the trees. These massive trees, these pine trees that rise as straight as an arrow into the sky, they're regal in their nature, they're majestic in their bearing. And these giant pines, they will sway and they will creak and they will groan. And underneath are the giant live oaks, the great live oak, 10, 12 feet in diameter. The boughs of these trees are as, are as many, big as many small trees are and they're twisted and they're gnarled. And they'll bend their limbs down and then they lift them back up. And the Spanish moss is in the tops of the trees. And the wind blows and the moss dances. And there's beauty in the wind and there's music in the air. And there's peace and serenity there that I have never found anyplace else. I know when I am there that I am closer to my God. Now, I'm not the only one that feels this way. And I would like to suggest that you come and see if you can find some of the peace and this enchanted little island into the sea. Well, I stayed down there with her for a while and I got a little better. I came back to go to work. But you know anybody's had any trouble with their heart's not supposed to get nervous. And everybody knows that a heart patient's supposed to get a full night's sleep every night. So I had tranquilizers to keep me calm and sleeping pills to make sure I slept and I washed it down with a bottle of scotch every night. Now, I don't think they meant for me to do that all at the same time, but I did. 
And this is where I now enter into that magic world of living totally by chemistry. And I feel fully qualified to speak as a drug addict. Because I took everything that was out at that time. I took everything except Miles Nervine and Lydia Pinkham. And I, I would have taken them too if they'd come in samples. But you, and it, as you see, and I know many of you know, that getting drugs never was a problem. All I had to do was open a drawer and reach in and get a handful of red ones and green ones and pink ones and blue ones and uppers and downers. We didn't have tricyclic, so, you know, that's the one that goes all three ways. And, but I took some of all of them. I had a pill for every ill. I had a pill for everything that there was, and I took them all. I never found a drug, though, other than alcohol, that would do for me what my drug of choice was. And my drug of choice, my friends, was Scotch whiskey. And I say it with reverence. <laughs> That was the finest drug that there ever was. It did everything for me that I ever wanted it to. And it took everything, too. But anyhow, I'm well aware and feel very strong about this phenomenon of cross-addiction. And I usually want to say a word or two about that, because I know that any time that I should ever take any mood-altering or mind-changing drug, I am interfering with my source of serenity, happiness, sobriety, and love. And it is only a matter of time till I end up on my drug of choice. So I'm not going to fool around with any Elevil or Melaril or Transine or Cerax or Librium or Valium or Quaaludes or smoke any of those funny no-name cigarettes or take any of those white powders. If I'm going to start off with I'm just going to go straight to scotch. That's where I'll end up. But it'll be a swimming pool full. And that's okay because I, uh, I know I can get drunk again, but I also know there's no more getting sober for me. But anyhow, as it will happen, I got back to work, and some interesting things happened along about this time. One I'll share with you, just to give you a little example of how my life was at this time. They called me in the middle of the night to come down to the hospital. Now, they had a real bad emergency down there. I wasn't on call. This was not my patient, but they needed somebody in my training and my experience, so they called me to come down in the middle of the night. And when the call came through, I accepted with all kinds of grandiosity. Of course I will. And I got in my, threw on my clothes, I got in my car, and I raced down the expressway, ego running wild. I'm a doctor in an emergency, you see. And I pull into the emergency room, and I leave the lights on, the motor running, the car door is open. And I open and enter into the emergency room, some sort of a combination of Walter Mitty and Superman. <laughs> Have no fear, Conway is here. And I went in and I took charge of the case, and the case went real well. One of the last things that we lose is our ability to perform and our trained skills, because we're usually the best there is. The case went real well, and I would have been all right if I'd kept my mouth shut. But no practicing alcoholic's going to keep his mouth shut. So I had to tell them how lucky they were to have me down there, and I did. Well, the next morning, when I came to the hospital to go to work, uh, <clears throat> fully expecting a hero's welcome, I didn't get that at all. When I entered in to the hospital, what I noticed were people standing around in little groups, and they were whispering to each other, and they were looking at me. 
And as one of our friends says, they were looking at me sort of slaunch-eyed. You've all seen these people, as one of your West Coast statesmen here refers to them. Is it those people with the thin little lips and the beady eyes, you know? Whenever they're doing that, they're talking about you. And you know they're talking about you because you can feel it. Well, they were talking about me. And I got called down to the administrator's office and told in no uncertain terms not to ever come back to that hospital under the influence. Well, I thanked them. I had sense enough to keep my mouth shut. I went out and got in my car, and I drove on over to my office, and I just got filled up with righteous indignation. As I got to thinking about this, now thinking is one of the most dangerous things an alcoholic can do. The more righteous I got. So finally, I reached down under the seat, and I got that bottle of hot vodka. If there are any of you that have not experienced the thrill <laughs> of drinking hot vodka, I don't recommend it. <clears throat> that sends chills up my spine right now, but it does have authority. If, if you ever get one of those to stay down, you're in control the rest of the day. <laughs> the insanity of it all, Doug, is I believed it. I couldn't see that I had done anything wrong. They didn't appreciate me. What if I had had those two or three little drinks? These are the most narrow-minded, unappreciative people I'd ever seen. Well, <clears throat> as it often happens to us alcoholics, even with things like that happening, I kept falling up the stairs. I kept getting promoted. Finally, I got put on the executive committee of the whole hospital. They called me to come to the executive committee meeting. It was on a Wednesday morning in December, right before Christmas, and it was very cold. And I remember getting up that morning, and I got fully dressed. I put on a suit and an overcoat and a hat and a muffler and gloves and dark glasses. <laughs> this was before daylight. And this was before dark glasses were cool. <laughs> and I went into that room and into that meeting, just as I described, and I went over and I sat down. Now, these are my peers, the chief of surgery, the head of medicine, the hospital administrator, some of the trustees, the head nun and the head nurse, and they're all sitting around there. I must have gotten there a little bit late, and I went in just as I dressed as I described, and I sat down. Well, once again, they all started staring at me, and I knew they were staring at me, and I didn't know what to do, so I passed out. <laughs> this really shook them up, you know. I said, oh, my Lord, he's dead, and, you know. They knew I'd had this heart attack, and the bells were ringing, and sirens were blowing, and they had oxygen over. I know one big old fellow had me up in his arms, and here I was coming in and out of consciousness saying, please let it be a dream. Please let it be a dream. Well, it wasn't any dream, and, and when I woke up, they had me in an oxygen tent, and they had something hooked up to everything you can hook up something to. And then the doctors came in. Oh, those kind gentlemen. They listened to the heart, they ran the heart tracings, and then they frowned. There wasn't anything wrong with the heart. I was a medical mystery. 
But I solved the mystery for them. I went into the DTs. <laughs> I heard things, saw things, hired people, fired people, running up and down that hospital cart and that little gown they give you that doesn't quite cover, you know, and it was me and the nurses and they reindeers and Santa Claus and we go this way and come back. Some of it was real, some of it wasn't, you know. But it was all real to me. Well, anyhow, I woke up one morning and I started to get my clothes together to go home. And she, the nurse said, what are you doing? I said, it's almost Christmas. I'm going to go home and be with my children. You can't keep me here. This is a hospital, not a jail. They went and called my father and said, you got to come get him. So on Christmas Day, my father took me to the local drunk hospital. Now, I remember entering this hospital, but I never remember leaving the hospital because they did all the wrong things that you can do. They gave me more and more drugs, and this is where I lost my mind. I don't even remember, I never, I don't remember leaving the hospital. I don't remember much even about what happened while I was there. The things that I do remember, none of them are pleasant. I remember being put in the straitjacket. I remember being held forcibly and tied down to the bed. I remember the big leather straps as they went across my chest and my legs and the cuffs around my wrists. I remember the screams. I remember being locked in the room with a naked light bulb over me and a little peephole in the door and every now and then they came by and looked at me as I was tied to the table. I remember the fear. I remember the pain in the back after the convulsions. One night the convulsions were so severe the nurse called the doctor in charge. What must we do? We can't stop the convulsions. The reply was, let him die. He's a hopeless alcoholic. Let him die. I remember the screams. I remember looking at my hands. There are even times now I wake up in the middle of the night and I'll be drenched in sweat. May I never forget it. May I never forget it. Thank God we've got treatment centers now that not only provide the proper medical care, but instill a program of hope and recovery and maintaining the individual rights and protecting the dignity of of the human being. We are not second-class citizens. We have a disease. It's called alcoholism. I finally did leave, and once again I went back down to stay with my sister. This was in the dead of winter. And I don't remember much about the first few days I was there because I must have been sort of like a zombie. I was so obtunded with the drugs and the medication that they had given me that I didn't drink, I didn't take anything, I didn't even know where I was. Friends had to take me down there. But I would get out and I would walk. This is one of the greatest things that ever happened to me. It was in the dead of winter, and the island was almost deserted. And I would get out and I would walk, and I would walk along the sandy roads, and I would walk along the shore. And I became aware of the tremendous power that was present there. Think next time when you walk along the shore, when you look at the beautiful ocean that we have here, when you hear the mighty ocean roar, when you feel the pull of the tide, when you see the birds in flight or the little fishes or even the fiddler crabs as they scurry along through the foam, these things didn't just happen. 
something was happening inside of me. I was beginning to be aware of the power of the universe and the harmony that was there. As I sat underneath a great oak tree, I experienced a feeling of peace that I had never known before. The best way that I can describe it is the absence of fear. I wasn't afraid. Fear is one of the one great common denominator of all alcoholics. I've never known an alcoholic or a drug addict yet that wasn't afraid. This knowing, all-consuming fear that you wake up in the morning and you're lying there and you're afraid. You don't even know what you're afraid of. That thing in your stomach. But no, as long as I was sitting there under that tree, I was as safe and secure and felt as comfortable as I must have when my mother held me in her arms. I wasn't afraid. I stayed down there a little while. I left. I came back to go to work. Go to work. I didn't know if I'd have a job. It's not much secret what's wrong with you when you go into DTs. And this is where my friends in the medical profession almost killed me with kindness. Because they've been covering up for me for a long time anyhow. They invited me to come back to the hospital. I didn't know what I'd say. I didn't have to say or do anything. They said, we want you to come back and go to work with us. We know you've been working these long and hard hours. We know you've had this trouble with your heart. We know you've been taking this medication. We want you to come back and be with us, but keep it under control. Keep it under control. My friends, at this time or shortly thereafter... There was absolutely no control. I was a hopeless addict to the drug, alcohol. I couldn't go over two hours at a time without taking a drink. This was the horror part of alcoholism, the running, the hiding, the lying, the living in fear, the feeling of doom and impending disaster. The next step that you take, you're going to fall off the cliff. The telephone rings and panic sets in. Hiding and lying. You wake up in the morning, you lie there in the bed, and you know that the shakes and the sweats are going to come. And you know that's only one thing will stop it, and that's another drink, and you know that you've got to have it. Keep it under control. There was no control. I wasn't drinking because I wanted to. I was drinking because I had to. I should never have been allowed back in that hospital. Thank God my father was always at my side, and I didn't hurt anybody. And if they had not allowed me back in that hospital, I might have gotten well sooner. But they did, and the inevitable happened. I went back down there, they stopped me, they sent me home. Sent me a letter, don't ever come back to the hospital. Publicly humiliated, embarrassed, disgraced. Once again, I went back down to St. Simon's Island. This is where I was first introduced to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I went to a meeting down there the only way that I could, just as high as George Pine. And that's okay. That's okay. And thank goodness nobody there at that meeting stopped me and sent me home and said, Alcoholics Anonymous is just for sober alcoholics. If I had been rejected, if I had been rejected at that time, I'd not be alive today. I don't remember a lot about what happened there. They... uh, 
somebody got up and talked, and after that was over, they, they gave out these poker chips. Now, that's something we do down south. I know it's not done all over the country, but they give out these poker chips, which is symbols of your recovery and your progress in the program. And they have one, you know, for the different months and so forth. And uh, they gave out these poker chips. Several people took one, and I took one, too. I would have taken one of each color if I thought it would have done any good. <laughs> I went home and I woke my sister up and I showed her that white poker chip with AA written on the surface. Knowing full well, she'd call back to Atlanta, our problems are solved. He's joined AA. I didn't join AA. I used AA. I went to AA for all the wrong reasons that there are. I went to AA to get them off my back. Because they were talking about what they were going to do with me and they meant for keeps. But here was my answer out. But I didn't drink. And I didn't take drugs. I would walk along the shore. I would sit underneath the trees. I would stand on the bridge and watch the boats go out. Something was happening inside of me. And I knew somehow that there was a strength and that there was a power there that if I could just grasp, that I could live. But I didn't know how not to drink. I left and I came back one more time. I continued to go to some AA meetings and it didn't do any good because I started drinking and taking drugs again. Several people tried to help me. I wouldn't help, let them help me. I wouldn't let you see how miserable I was inside. I couldn't share that with you. No, leave me alone. I don't need you. Leave me alone. Finally, one night, this man came out to the house and he's my sponsor. He still is my sponsor, and I believe very strongly in sponsorship. And if you don't have one, get one. He's a big guy. Six feet, and I needed a big guy. Six feet, four inches tall, 250 pounds, a marathon runner and a finger pointer. (laughs) And he came in the house that night, and he sat down, and he took my inventory like it has never been taken before or since. And I resented this, and I rose up all five feet, and I said, Now listen here, you don't have any right to come in here and talk to me this way. I'm a man with two college degrees, bank account in two different banks, an upstanding citizen and member of it. He said, You remember that when the sheriff comes out here. Anyhow, I said, You don't have any right to come talk to me. I didn't ask for your help. He knew I was right. He hung his head and he walked towards the door and immediately I knew I had the advantage in this situation that the tide had turned. And I was just like a little feisty dog. I'd nip him every time he'd stop, you know. And I backed him up to a corner in the kitchen and I said, why do you do this? Do you do this because you hate me? He paused a minute and then he brought to me the 11th commandment. And I refer to the 13th chapter of the book of John, the 31st verse, where it is written, A new commandment that I give unto you, that you love one another. Because he said, No, Conway, it's because I love you. Here's a six and a half foot giant standing there in my living room telling me that he loves me. I wish that I could say that I stopped drinking then. I didn't. Two days later, Two days later, I went to the living room in the house. I was all alone. My family had all gone. They had to leave for their own sanity and for their own safety. And I was at the depths of despair. And this now was time for my moment of truth. 
Because, you see, I did not plan to live. I did not know how not to drink. And I couldn't stand to live the life that I was living and to hurt my children anymore or to hurt myself anymore. Then my mind became as clear and capable of sane and orderly thought as it has ever been before or since. It was just crystal clear and I could see myself as I really was. All the false pride, the ego, the facade that I was living in was completely removed. And this enabled me to completely surrender and turn my will and my life over to the care of God as best that I could. I fell on my knees and I said, God help me. God help me. Prayer, you say? Prayer was nothing new to me. I lived a life of prayer. I prayed all day long, every day. God, you get me out of this, and I promise I'll never do that again. Please, God, one more time, if you'll just do this for me, if you'll get me through this, I promise you on bargains and pleadings and promises, no. A simple but a sincere cry for help. Show me the way. Immediately I thought about Dr. John. I had heard about him. I called him on the telephone. He answered the phone himself. And I went down and I lived with him in his home. For I don't know how long. About ten days, I think. And there, not only he was there, but so were you people. And you introduced me to unconditional love. You didn't ask me who I was or what I had done. You knew that I was lonely. You knew that I was sick. You knew that I was afraid. You took me into your hearts. You took me into your homes. You put your arms around me and you loved me. You loved me back to health. Love is the greatest healing power that has ever been known. Love conquers all. You loved me back to health and to sanity. Wasn't all a bit of roses though that, that doctor did believe in withdrawing. And I withdrew with just withdrawing. Second day I was there, he came into my room and he said, we're going to a meeting tonight. I said, going to a meeting? Dr. John, I can't even put on my pants. We went to a meeting that night. And there I picked up the white chip, the surrender chip, that enabled me to go on to the blue chip that I have today. This great man taught me so much. It was such a privilege for me to be with him during that time. A few of his witticisms were that... If you always tell the truth, you know, we'll have to write it down. And he said, now, Conway, he said, I want you to always sit in the front row. He said, I don't want you to miss anything. He said, you get right down the front row and you stay there. He also said, whenever there's a restroom present, use it because you don't know when the next one's coming along. We had a lot of fun together, and I, I really enjoyed it. And, and then another significant thing happened. The day that I was, before I was getting ready to leave, I was standing there in John's den, looking out into the November morning, and I was, once again, all alone. I think I've been alone almost all my life. And I became aware of the sunlight as it filtered through a little grove of pine trees, and it penetrated the panes in these French doors, and then along with that, there's these vast 
beams, shafts of light came in and, and engulfed my body. It was accompanied by a surge of heat, a warmth. And with that was the instant knowledge. And I knew then and I know now that at that moment I was within the presence of God. And that as long as I remained so, I would never ever have to take a drink or a drug again. I was free. My obsession, my compulsion was completely removed. I was free. My friends, from that day, which was November the 13th, 1966, I have never wanted a drink or a drug of any kind. I take absolutely no credit for my sobriety, purely a gift from God. Well, I left and I came back to Atlanta and this time I joined AA and I, I did all the things that you told me to do and I went to the meetings and I emptied the ashtrays and, and, and I became a very visible member of Alcoholics Anonymous. After a while I re- rejoined the medical profession Rejoined my father, I got back on the hospital staff, and I became a very visible member of the medical community as a recovered alcoholic. And this was important to me. Everybody knew me when I was the drunk Dr. Hunter. I certainly wasn't ashamed of them to know me as the sober Dr. Hunter. And this was the way that I, that I lived and I worked during that time. I eventually got back on the executive committee of, that I passed out in that time. And then subsequently ended up as a chairman of the board of trustees of one of the largest medical surgical hospitals in the city. I'm very thankful for the fact that my father lived five more years and we worked together and he could be proud of the son that he loved so much. And now my home is getting to be a happy home. My children are happy children. And But I'm gone a lot. I, I remember quite well coming in late one Sunday afternoon and they came to to see what I was doing. They had been playing ball out in the yard. They stopped their game and they said, Dad, where are you going? I said, I'm going to a meeting. They said, well, I knew what they were thinking. They didn't say this. Why don't you come out and play ball with us? We haven't seen you in a few days. Come on out and be with us, Dad. They didn't say that. They said, have a good time, Dad. I love you, Dad. See you in the morning, Dad. I went back, got in my car, and I drove on to my meeting, and I realized what these children had told me. These were the children that I had abused. These are the children that I had mistreated. These are the children that cried all night. Where is Daddy? What's the matter with Daddy? These are the children, each one with that deep, dark secret inside. They couldn't tell you what happened in their house last night. These are the scars that will never be erased. Have a good time, Daddy. I love you, Daddy. See you in the morning, Daddy. Why? Because he's going to an AA meeting. They've got a Daddy now. Not only the Daddy that they love, they always loved me. They didn't understand. In their own little way, I guess, they maybe they felt responsible. But now they're proud of me. They're proud of me. They know where I am. They know what I'm doing. As long as I live, I'll never forget seeing my little girl hop down off the school bus. And she's a spunky little thing, a natural athlete, and had a long blonde ponytail and sparkling blue eyes. And you know when it's yours and something's wrong, you can tell it. And I looked and I saw the tears coming down her face. She ran into the house. She dropped her book. She grabbed me around the waist and she sobbed. I comforted her as best I could and finally 
when she calmed down, I said, Susan, what's wrong? She said, Daddy, on the school bus, they called you a drunk all the way home. She wrote me a letter the other day, started to the dearest dad in the world. I love you with all my heart, and I am so very proud that you're my father. Do you know what that means to me? From the look in those eyes. Well, so many wonderful things happened. I got involved in the professional end of recovery, and I worked in the hospitals, became a corporate medical director, and I did seminars and, and conferences and, and all of these things. And, and it was very significant, and it was a wonderful way to live. And I became very visible and very happy and very active in the program. But once again, I got to that particular point or stage where, where I didn't really realize it, but I had isolated myself enough, and once again, I probably wasn't a complete or a whole person. And then God, in his infinite wisdom, showed me once again how much he loved me. Four years ago, on St. Simon's Island, at a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous on Sunday morning, I went into a large auditorium, and it was filled with people just like you. And I looked across a crowded room, and I became aware of the sunlight once again as it cast a radiant glow around a beautiful flower. That beautiful flower, my friends, my wife Charlotte. And from that moment on, we joined together to walk, to trudge the road of happy destiny. And once again, the zeal, the thrill, the enthusiasm of life and of living has returned and once again, all the desires and the ambition, because we can do and we can have anything that we wish. When I stop and I think on this, and I reflect back, I say, thank God for this thing, this difference in me that led me to the disease of alcoholism, to drug addiction, to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, and to you wonderful people, because without that, I wouldn't be what I am today. I'm a happy alcoholic. I'm a successful alcoholic. I'm a very grateful alcoholic. You see, only until you have experienced the terror of the dark and lonely night can you fully appreciate the beauty of the joy of the morning. The beauty of the joy of the morning. Every morning that I wake up now is a beautiful day. It's a beautiful morning. And I can make choices. I can choose not only whether I'll drink or whether I'll take drugs, but where I'll go and who I'll be with, what songs I will sing and what words that I will say, how I will dress and even the books that I will read. And I choose to be happy. And I choose a life filled with joy. The rhythm of recovery produces the joy of sobriety. And so every day, with a song in my heart and a smile on my face, and gratitude overwhelming, fills me completely. There is so much that I would like to share with you, and time will not permit. But as I look into your faces, as I look into your eyes, and I see the beauty of the love of the God that lives inside, we're God's chosen people. Each and every one of us is a miracle. Each and every one of us is different, just like the snowflake or the flower. And each and every one of us is the only one of us that God has. 
and the flowers, and I love flowers. There's the flowers that grow in the field, as pretty as they are, will soon wither and die. The flowers that grow in the heart, they will live forever. Here are the flowers that live in the heart. We are the ones. Can we do any more or any less than the flowers that live in the field? We must give our all continually. We must share the wonderful blessings that have been given to us. We must share our life. We must share our love, our strength, and our hope with each other. Because, you see, you people are the ones that gave me everything that I have today. So much more than I ever dreamed that was possible. Beyond my heart's desires. And I'm not talking about material things. I'm talking about the feeling inside that comes when I know every night when I lie down that this has been a day well lived. And I can anticipate a wonderful night and a beautiful morning. You are the caretakers. You are the winners. You are the carers of the world. To each and every one of you, I want to say I thank you. I thank you for the privilege of being here. I thank you for your love. And to each and every one of you, I open I ask for God to hold you ever so gently in the hollow of his hand. And to that God I say, how great thou art. Thank you.